0: About 10 years ago, uh, an Australian was put to death in Singapore for bringing drugs into the country. The warnings are clear in Singapore. This person knew what he was doing. There was a slightly complicated family story behind it. But his story captured the imaginations, the concern, the anguish of the whole of Australia, it seemed. It was front page news on and off for a few years, going through every appeal stage and then finally he was executed in Changi Prison uh, roughly 10 years ago. There was a huge outcry against the Singapore government for such a harsh sentence, even though uh, the sentence is well known, even though it's a a public thing that if you bring drugs above a certain amount into Singapore, death is the penalty and this person knew it. His funeral in Melbourne had more than 2,000 if not 3,000 people come to it and was uh, widely regarded as a a tragic event for such a young man. Most people in Australia would say this sentence was too harsh, too hard. Even though it was known, uh, that is, it's publicly known that this crime meets the death penalty in Singapore, most people in Australia thought too much, too much. Just two weeks ago, another young Australian, a person who seems to have slightly more notorious background, has been released from prison in Bali, a drug runner. She was sentenced to 20 years, I think, and in the end, after parole, it's ended up being, I think, roughly 10 years. Again, her story has captured the imagination so that when she was released from prison, all the Australian media thought that she was like a princess and all flocked to chase her all around Bali wherever she went. And there were rumours that different media outlets had sort of paid exorbitant amounts of money to her for her exclusive story on release. And again, Australians in this case were a little bit more divided. Is this a harsh sentence, 20 years? Is 10 years too lenient? Even though, again, the uh, sentences are known, we know that Indonesia treats drug runners in a harsh way compared to Australia, at least. Well, these things happen all around the world. Now, I'm in Malaysia as a visitor. This may be a country where justice is never debated or never talked about, although I doubt that. In every country, frequently, issues of justice are around. Sentences that are too harsh, sentences that are too lenient. When the Madrid bombings happened in Spain a few years ago, by terrorists, the Spanish people and government, I think, uh, decided to change the law to have a severer penalty for terrorism, and so they wanted to jail terrorists for thousands of years. Now, I didn't know that terrorists lived that long, (laughs) and I was a bit horrified to think that terrorists would live that long. I mean, God seems to promise a long life to people other than terrorists, it seems to me. Lamentations laments the fall of Jerusalem in the 6th century BC. God's special place, not just the capital city, not on the par of Kuala Lumpur, sorry to say, but this was the place where God, the living God, dwelt. And so the destruction of Jerusalem was an absolutely catastrophic socio-political event, like it would be if Kuala Lumpur was fallen to the invading, you know, Singaporeans or Bruneians or something. But much more than that, this seemed to be a huge theological catastrophe. Where is God? God defeated, God absent, what's going on? And Lamentations laments the fall, even though, (laughs) as we saw last week, the narrator of this lament knows that it's fair. He knows that the sentence for the sins that Israel have been committing for so long is destruction and exile, because when Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians, many hundreds, if not thousands of people were taken away to exile far away to Babylon. And yet, Lamentations laments the severity of the punishment as though this is too much. Well, The focus in this chapter this week uh, now switches to the perpetrator. Last week, if you remember, the, the book is a little bit like one of those journalist reports where the camera pans around the destruction of the city. You get brief snippets of interviews with the city, bewailing its fall. But now we get a bit more analysis. And now the focus is on God. Remember last week we saw how poetic this book is and how poetry sort of heightens the imagination and heightens the emotion. So verse 1 begins not saying, the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. That's true. But he says, how the Lord. So it's passionate the way that he introduces this. And notice through these opening verses down to say verse 9... God is the subject. It is not saying that Babylon has defeated Jerusalem, but that God has done it. So it's how the Lord in his anger in verse one has uh, set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He, that is the Lord, has cast down from heaven to earth. He has not remembered his footstool. The Lord has swallowed up. The Lord in verse uh, three has cut down in fierce anger In the same verse, the Lord has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. The Lord has burned like a flaming fire. The Lord has bent his bow. The Lord has killed all who are delightful. The Lord has poured out his fury at the end of verse 4. The Lord has become like an enemy. The Lord has swallowed up Israel. The Lord has swallowed up all its palaces. The Lord has laid in ruins and so on. We slightly lose that by just seeing the pronoun he, he, he. But it's the Lord who's done this. That's the emphasis of these opening verses. And what a striking statement. That's thoroughly true, theologically correct. Babylon came and overran Jerusalem after a siege lasting up to 18 months. We could say that Babylon has done it because Babylon is brutal and Babylon was big. True. Politically, that would be the answer. But this book knows what is really true. This book knows that God has done it, and God has done it unrelentingly to God's own people. This is a shocking statement. True, but shocking. The Lord has destroyed in all these different ways. It's a litany of destruction, and nothing is left, and no one is spared. So in verse 2, it's the strongholds, the habitations, the strongholds, the uh, kingdom and its rulers. The places that people thought were impregnable and safe. The king's palace, the walls, the fortresses, the citadels around Jerusalem. But not so. All smashed down. And in in Jerusalem itself, in verse 6, for example... The destruction of the festivals, the Sabbath, the king and the priest. No more joy. Jerusalem was the focus of all the Old Testament festivals as people would pilgrimage there for up to, well, more, maybe more than a week if they lived on the far extremity of the land. Three times a year for Passover, tabernacles and weeks. Not that for the Sabbath, that wasn't a pilgrimage, But it was a day of rest, a day of joy, a day of being with God all through the land. But no more. Destroyed. And he spurned the king and the priest. The king ruling the nation, the priest conducting worship in the towns, but maybe here especially the focus of the Jerusalem temple which is destroyed. Continues in verse 7 that the Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary, and delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. Nobody expected that. Ten years before this event, as we said last week, Babylon besieged Jerusalem. Jerusalem capitulated, surrendered, but there was no destruction. The Babylonians put on the throne another Davidic king, but one who was a puppet to them, so that they effectively controlled the nation. But Jerusalem stood and the temple stood, and maybe that even increased people's expectations that the temple could never fall. But it did. And God has done it. God has scorned his altar, the place of sacrifice where blood of animals was shed daily to bring people back to God. No more. At end. He's disowned his own sanctuary. That is the very heart of the temple, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God dwelt in a cloud of glory above the Ark, where nowhere else on earth God dwelt in such a special way, bringing his presence in the middle of his people, and God's abandoned it. Gone. In Ezekiel, there's a vision where this cloud of glory lifts up from the temple comes out from the Holy of Holies and comes out from the holy place into the courtyard and out from the threshold and then goes east across the Jordan, uh, Kidron Valley and out. God left the temple before it was destroyed and he's delivered all of this. God has delivered it into the hands of the enemies. We might say politically Babylon was always going to defeat it because Babylon was so mighty, but no, God has delivered it to them. God's handed it over. There's nothing for Babylon to boast in here. It's all God's doing. In verse 8, the city walls and the ramparts, gone. Jerusalem was a very safe city, in fact. It's built on a wedge of valleys. These days, at least one of those valleys has almost been filled in by centuries of people building on it. But it was on a wedge of valleys, not the highest mountain, but it was fairly safe. The northern end was the unsafe area, but it was surrounded by a wall, a different wall than what we see today. But it's gone. After that siege, in the end, it fell. And Babylon was successful because God had done it for them. And the gates have sunk into the ground. Again, probably poetic license here, (coughs) but the gates that would stop entry from the enemy, they're sunk into the ground. Probably poetic to say there are no more gates. There's no more stopping anybody coming in. The city is completely open. And indeed it was. Everything in the centre of old Jerusalem was thoroughly destroyed to its foundations when the Babylonians destroyed it in the 6th century BC. Here, God has struck to the very core of the identity of God's people. Maybe we think that's what happened in 9-11 in New York, getting to the very core of the identity of the United States, but this is worse. This has got a deeper theological crisis about it. It's not just the key building of the country, it's God himself, God's own city, the city that the psalmist sang about so many times, the city that would never fall, has fallen. Not by Babylon, but by God himself. And all of Israel's special status as God's people, which had been in scripture from the time of Abraham onwards, hundreds of years, 1400 years perhaps, seems to have come to naught. Notice too in this section, the emphasis on anger. So in verse 1, the Lord in his anger has done this. In verse 3, we find that the Lord has cut down in fierce anger. In verse 4, at the end, he's poured out his fury like fire. The end of verse 6, in his fierce indignation. It's not always popular to think of God as an angry God. Sometimes that's because we falsely attribute a wrong understanding of anger We get angry at all sorts of little things. Often our anger is provoked by our own pride and selfishness. That somehow something or someone has invaded that. But God's anger is never provoked by his own selfishness, but by a righteousness. God's anger is always against sin. By anybody. His own people or anybody at all. As I say, God's anger is much maligned these days, it seems. And many would argue that God is never angry because he's a God of love. But that's not new. For 2,000 years, Christians have debated this issue and heretics have gone down the path that says God's never a God of anger. To the point that some of them have said we throw out the Old Testament because it's a different God from the new. And yet the anger of God remains a steadfast part of understanding God through all the pages in the New Testament as well. I guess anger shows that God cares, just like a parent's anger to their children when they do something wrong, if you've ever experienced that, but then maybe you've never done anything wrong. Because Israel has rebelled and so seriously God is angry. And God's anger brings a righteous punishment. It's not that Fickle anger, it's not flying off into a rage that is overstated. This is an anger that is properly executed based on a lack of righteousness by God's people in this case. And so what we see in this first half of the chapter is God attacking like an enemy. Instead, God was meant to be the friend, the defender. But he's become the enemy, not because God has changed sides but because Israel or Judah's behavior has meant they've changed sides. They've acted like pagans, full of idolatry and immorality, and they've made themselves enemies of God, and therefore God is now their enemy. Well, no wonder this is such a lament. In verse 10, having heard the description of what God has done, the subject of those verses, now we get a description of The response or the consequence, the grief. In verse 10, the elders of the daughters of Zion sit on the ground in silence. Nothing to say. A silence of grief here, not a silence of sort of, you know, warm, fuzzy meditation. A silence of grief and horror. Dust on their heads, they're wearing sackcloth. Typical actions and clothes of mourning, that is, not. Before noon, but mourning as in grief, in the ancient world, the young women have bowed their heads to the ground, and this has affected the the commentator, the journalist or the narrator. So often journalists get quite troubled in play, when they're working in places of huge distress like war or famine. Uh, one Australian journalist ended up taking drugs, losing his job because of the constant grind of seeing the hardships of the world. And many have had to have counselling after they've been journalists, for example, in Rwanda uh, a bit over, what was it, 20 years ago and so on. And here the narrator, like a journalist perhaps, he himself cries, my eyes, he says, are spent with weeping, And my stomach churns, my bile is poured out on the ground. He's vomiting. Maybe again poetic license, maybe real. He's vomiting at what he sees. It causes him to wretch because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the day. What an awful picture this is. But in the destruction of Jerusalem, because people were so malnourished through the eighteen-month siege, and many had died even in the siege before Babylon finally destroyed the city. When Babylon came, the people were too weak to resist, collapsing in the streets, dying in the streets—children, babies, mothers, and and fathers—and all—a terrible, pitiful picture, a pathetic picture, a sad picture. Now the narrator turns to speak to the city himself. He's observed it. He's analyzed it. In effect, he's commentated or shared with us some of the grief. He himself has shared his own grief. And now he says in verse uh, 13, (coughs) I should say verse 12, firstly, they, they cry to their mothers for bread and wine. Probably should comment there. It sounds like little children are sort of alcoholics. But bread and wine is basic food and drink. It would be an idiom. Bread, The word bread, in fact, in Hebrew is, is the basic word for food as well as for bread. And wine would function with it in a similar way. Basic food and drink. They're crying out for something. And their life is poured out on their mother's <coughs> bosom. Maybe that's suggesting that they can't even get milk to sustain them from their malnourished mothers. A bit like that terrible sad picture at the end of the grapes of wrath by Steinbeck where in the absolute desolation and poverty of the American depression where these people who've come to California thinking it's the promised land and have been met with absolute dire poverty have nothing and no food the end scene is of a malnourished withered breast trying to give milk even for adults so that they might survive terrible picture Maybe that's what this is saying as well. So now the narrator speaks to Jerusalem. What can I say for you? To what compare you? The rhetorical questions, as so often in Hebrew, have no answer. Well, it's not an answer for debate. There is nothing to compare this to. Students would like this sort of question. Rhetorical questions imply the answer. So you can imagine going into an exam And all your questions are rhetorical ones that imply the answer, yes or no. That would be an easy exam, I think. So what can I say for you? Nothing, really. To what can I compare you? Nothing, really, O daughter of Jerusalem. What can I liken you to? That I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion. For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? In effect, it's a statement, there is no one. This is too deep, too big, too bad. And yet, how significant it is, as we'll see in the verses that follow as well, that he doesn't offer false hope. You know how easy it is to give cheery words. Always look on the bright side of life. Well, that was Monty Python. A parody of cheery words, really. Things will be okay. It's not as bad as you think it is. Come on, come on, there, there, it will be fine. We say that and we hear that all the time. Empty, trite words of so-called comfort and hope that are baseless, foundationless. That's not helpful in the end, actually. But we clamor for such words when we're in grief. And what we get here is a picture of, of false prophets who are offering false hope. It's what you see in Jeremiah, the book of the prophet Jeremiah. Several times, false prophets like Hananiah, for example, in chapter 28 of Jeremiah. So verse 14, your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. Not Jeremiah, not Ezekiel, but the false prophets who said Jerusalem will never fall. You are safe. Just keep on living. False visions. They've not exposed your iniquity. A false prophet doesn't notice, address, or expose sin. Glosses over it. You see, false prophets say what itching ears long to hear. False prophets are full of false hope, false comfort. False prophets take no seriousness about issues of sin and judgment and the wrath and anger of God. But you have seen for you, but they have seen for you, oracles that are false and misleading. False prophets abound in every age of history. Today as well. All through history. False prophets have proclaimed that you know, God is just so loving, it doesn't really matter what you do, it doesn't matter what lifestyle you live, God will just welcome you with open arms at the end. It doesn't matter who you worship, but on the final day, God will welcome you. That is false, deceptive, devilish and evil, in fact. Jerusalem had been pounded with that sort of false prophecy, which is why Jeremiah's life was so often under threat. Because he seemed to be almost a lone voice of true prophecy. False prophets lead us to death and destruction. They sound nice. They sound comforting. They sound pleasant. They attract us. They become popular. They often become prosperous. They are very powerful often in the church. There are church leaders, church preachers who preach to hundreds and hundreds of people bigger than this congregation week by week people love it and cheer. But are their words true? Is the hope they offer godly, biblical hope that comes from the word of the true and living God, a holy God, though a merciful God? There's a warning to us as well. We're attracted to things that don't challenge us, that don't upset our life or our lifestyle. That's a danger. We need to test the voices and test the prophets. The people of Jerusalem had been sadly misled, tragically misled. Their sins had never been exposed. And thus they blithely carried on sinning, thinking that they were living lives of immunity against God's judgment. They could sin with impunity, but not so. As we saw last week, the grief is compounded by those who mock. So in verse 15 again, all who pass along the way clap their hands at you, hiss and wag their heads. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty of the joy of the whole earth? They mock, they deride. The grief is exacerbated by such ridicule and mockery, the fallenness. We know that today. We know that when the church fails, when God's people fail or suffer, so often it attracts the added ridicule and mockery of others. We shouldn't be surprised at that. It happens here. But as they say, he who who laughs last laughs best. And the end will come for Babylon in its time. All your enemies rail against you, verse 16. They hiss and gnash their teeth. They're boasting about their victory, but remember the first part of the chapter? It's not their victory. It's actually God's doing. God's the perpetrator. It is not their boast, and they are ignorant of that. The climax of the description in this chapter comes in verse 17. The Lord has done what he purposed. The Lord has done it. And he's carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. And we could gloss over that and not pay attention to what that's saying, but it's actually very significant. Exactly what has happened to Jerusalem was predicted 800 years before, in the words of Moses, before he died. So at the end, towards the end of Deuteronomy, Moses, having gone through, recited, and rehearsed the law of God, proclaims that if you disobey this law, then God's curses will come upon you. There will be famines and droughts and pestilence and locust plagues and sicknesses and mildew and blight and all of those sorts of things. And they've all happened in Israel's history. We know that from the time of Joshua through to here. All of those things have happened. We know that Moses prophesied that enemies will attack you. You'll lose land. That's happened. And the climax of that, a long section of Deuteronomy, 54 verses of curses, comes to the climax with a description of the destruction of the nation and its exile away to a foreign pagan nation. And that's what's happened. But in detail, Moses anticipated that in the siege that precedes the destruction, there'd be cannibalism. People will eat children. There'd be breakdown of relationships. People will be selfish trying to stay alive and even turning against their husbands or wives. And that happened. God's word is so accurate. God had said this long ago. He'd warned them long ago. You see, you can't arrive into Singapore or Malaysia, for that matter, carrying drugs and say, oh, I didn't know that this was a problem here. It's very clear. This is the sentence for such a crime. It's announced in the airplane every time you land, I think. And God had said so clearly in the Torah, in Deuteronomy... A passage that was meant to be read at least every seven years at the Feast of Tabernacles. This is what will happen if you disobey God's law. And they disobeyed, and they disobeyed, and they disobeyed, and they never turned, and they never turned, and they disobeyed, and, and now it's happened. Don't be surprised, is what the narrator is saying. This is what God said long ago. If you want to understand why and what's happened, well, come back to God's word. He interprets the events before the events to show that it's God who's in charge of the events all the way through scripture and that's what he does here as well. You see, this anger of God is not fickle. It's not just flying off the handle because God had a bad night of sleep. God's anger is anticipated because of exactly the sins he warns against. Sometimes we ignore God's word at our peril. Sometimes we ignore the warnings of scripture which flow through the New Testament as much as the old. We ignore the warnings of drifting. Ignore the warnings of not gathering together. We ignore the warnings of idolatry and immorality, of ongoing persistent and willful sin. And we think it's all okay. My false prophet pastor said God doesn't judge, God's not angry, God's loving. The same dangers face us as they did for ancient Jerusalem. And so the writer, even here, even after the destruction of the city, the writer pleads with Jerusalem to turn to God. It's amazing. We might think, fall of Jerusalem, end. No chance. No time to repent now. But not so. So in verse 18, their heart cried... uh, Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion... Let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Now that's an amazing plea because the temple's gone, and therefore the presence of the Lord hasn't that gone? And yet, in one sense, no. Even here, Even in the smouldering ruins of Jerusalem, or even perhaps if this is read in the refugee camp of Babylon, it is not yet too late to pour out your tears to God. It's an amazing thing. We'll see the climax of this theme in this book next week, in the middle of chapter 3. But even after the fury of God's wrath, it's not yet too late to turn back to God. A God who's rich in mercy. A God whose steadfast love never ceases. He loves for his people. Even to the last second to turn back to him with repentance. For until the very final breath or day, All of God's judgment is disciplinary. All of God's punishment is meant to bring us back to him, no matter how harsh that may be. Even this. It's not yet too late. But what we see here also, there is a a very important difference. The New Testament also makes clear. The difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow Worldly sorrow leads to death. Worldly sorrow is self pitying and therefore full of pride. Worldly sorrow is what often we express when things go wrong for us. But what God wants is godly sorrow tears of godly sorrow, tears of repentance that leads then to life and not death. But does it happen? This chapter ends with a slightly ambiguous response. Look, O Lord, and see, with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets, let lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side and on the day of the anger of the Lord. No one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. If that is the response of the city, the people in response to the narrator urging them to turn to God in the verses before, it's not a very positive response. It's the lament, but it's saying this is too harsh. What we're suffering is too much. It's almost implying, God, I understand that you should destroy because of sin, but this is too much. Where is the godly sorrow here? Where is the repentance here? It's almost a hint of indignation. Almost a hint of blame that God has gone too far. This prayer to God at the end of the chapter doesn't ask for anything. It simply laments. It doesn't plead for mercy. It simply laments. It doesn't confess sin. It simply laments. It seems that Zion yet has got a way to go if it is to turn to God with godly sorrow. This is too much, they say. The sentence is too harsh. Like Australians objecting to Singapore's death penalty. This is too harsh. It's a crime, but it's too much of a sentence. is it? Is it? Is it too much of a sentence that people die in Jerusalem, that priest and prophet die, that the sanctuary is destroyed, that under siege people end up in cannibalism? Is it too much? Is God unfair? Is God so harsh and severe? God's the one who has the right to set the standards. And on the day that you sin, you'll surely die. The wages of sin is death. We may think that's too harsh, but who are we? We're not God. We don't have the moral autonomy to decide what is right or wrong. Only God does. It's a severe penalty. Death is no joke. But God has warned his people time and time again in his law and through a long succession of prophets God hasn't hidden his word. God hasn't tricked them into their sin. God hasn't withheld anything from them. And yet they sin. Is God really so harsh? No. Not even here in the Old Testament. For even here God is inviting them back to repentance. Oh yes, the wages of sin is death. On the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. The first sentence of judgment in the second chapter of the whole Bible. And all of us face death. All of us face that penalty, that sentence. A just sentence. Not too harsh. From a holy yet loving God. But thanks be to God. God. That he whose steadfast love never ceases, whose mercies never come to an end, has paid for us by his Son who died for us. Let's pray. Lord our God, open our ears to your word, to true prophets to the true warnings, who us to know your character well, expose our sin in our own eyes that we may repent before it's too late, before the Lord returns. Amen.